0: When there was nothing, there was God. And then God spoke. Did you ever build a house or a building? You, you start with an idea, and then you get a drawing and a blueprint. And at some point, the architect will add the windows and doors and the wiring and the plumbing and other details. Um, a visual detailed plan is developed for what you're going to build. It's an elaborate design of bits and pieces and parts and and things that give all of the information about the building, but it's not the building. Once the building is built, the building is the reality of the blueprint. The Old Testament or Old Covenant is the blueprint for the New Testament, or the New Covenant. It gives the parts and the segments in the Old Testament. It gives the foundation. It gives the pieces, the pictures, the types to be fulfilled in the New Testament. The New Testament is the reality. The Old Testament is the blueprint. Scripture teaches progressive revelation. What is that? This means that the things God revealed to humanity were not all given at once. God's revelation was given in stages, parts, eras almost. And so what is God revealing in progressive revelation? He's revealing himself. He is revealing himself. He is revealing his character and his ways. He is revealing his love for mankind. He is revealing the barrier that exists between God and man due to the fall of man when Adam and Eve chose in the Garden of Eden to go their own way instead of God's way. He's revealing what happens when man is obedient compared to when man is disobedient. Every religion is man's attempt to find God, except Christianity. Except Christianity. In Christianity, a loving, loving, living God invades the history of mankind, searching for a relationship with man, his creation. And he reveals to, to man what God himself is like. And so, all through the Old Testament, he begins teaching, This is what I'm like. This is how I think. This is what you have to do. And so, the only way we can know anything about God, I cannot find him. The only way I can know anything about him is for him to reveal himself to me. And so, God spoke. He first spoke, revealing himself in the Old Testament. There are all different kinds of ways in which God spoke in the Old Testament over hundreds of years. Sometimes he spoke in visions, sometimes he spoke in an audible voice, sometimes in blueprints and patterns and symbols and ceremonies. And so God is a God of truth and truth does not change. The truth has not changed over the course of history, but it builds the entire old testament focuses on the preparation for the new testament and the coming of christ the messiah the revelation of god's progress is to prepare us for christ he progresses all through the old testament to get us ready to get everything ready so that when christ would come he would be recognized as who he was. In the Old Testament, mankind became separated from God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they died in their spirit, and they, that interrupted that close relationship that they had with God himself. Uh, and, and they had that before um, they disobeyed God and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, mind you, they already knew good. So when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, then all of a sudden they knew evil and what its results would be. They knew God and his goodness, and they lived in a place where everything was good, and then they ate of that tree, and they discovered evil, and that was the very thing that God was protecting them from by telling them not to eat of the tree. So to overcome... The barrier that had come up between God and man, God gave a plan. It's a plan of sacrifices for sin. And the proper offering of sacrifices would drop that barrier between God and man. And so how often did they have to make those sacrifices? All the time. They had to make them incessantly, all day. Every day, hour after hour, day after day, year after year, priests were constantly making sin offerings for their own sin and for the sin uh, of mankind, the sins of the people. No one could even get near God except for one priest one day a year. It was like a losing battle to keep that separating barrier between God and man removed. So they had to do and do and do and sacrifice and sacrifice and sacrifice and work and work and work. And so they felt the need, they knew they needed a way for a sacrifice that didn't just deal with one sin and then another sin and then some other sins and do it over and over and over again all day, every day. So God had a plan such a sacrifice. They needed a sacrifice that would be sufficient to last for all time for all sins. And so, over a long period of history, God revealed the plan. Uh, he gave the blueprint, the building piece upon piece upon piece, so that we could understand. And so, all through the Old Testament, God's giving those those clues and that information because the day would come when that plan would be complete in Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the savior of the world. Well, God began to give information about Messiah very early in the Old Testament to the serpent in the Garden of Eden God said, there will be enmity between the seed of the woman and you, representing Satan. Her seed will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. It was the first promise of Messiah and it happened that early in the history of mankind. Then to Noah, he revealed the quarter of the world in which from which messiah would come and then to abraham he revealed the nation of messiah to jacob he revealed the tribe of messiah to david and isaiah he revealed the family of messiah to micah he revealed the town where messiah would be born to daniel he revealed the time when Messiah would be born. To Malachi, he revealed the forerunner who would come before Messiah, meaning John the Baptist. To Jonah, God gave a picture of the resurrection. So all through the Old Testament, it is there. And the Lord Jesus is the subject all the way through the Old Testament. He is the one who is pictured or blueprinted in the sacrifices and the ceremonies. He is the king and the savior who was promised throughout the Old Testament time and time and time again. But they only had partial knowledge and they couldn't sort everything out. We get to see the whole picture because we see all of those years of history and the whole Old Testament revelation. They only lived for a span of time. And so all they knew was what they could get when they were there, while they were living there. So through the hundreds of years of the Old Testament, God spoke and he revealed himself progressively. He revealed who he is. He revealed his attributes. He shows us how he reacts to human situations. What he is like, what he does, he revealed himself through man, through history, through Israel, through all that happened, God was revealing himself. The Old Testament is the revelation of God to show man what God is like, who God is, what he tolerates and doesn't tolerate, and how God desires holiness and punishes sin. Over and over, God's people saw that God always stood by his word. He always did what he said he would do. Always. After all of those years of speaking and leading and demonstrating and showing and giving plans and patterns and blueprints for the kingdom of God, one day, around 433 B.C., he just stopped speaking. Just stopped And for 400 years, there was not a recorded word of God saying anything. Years of silence. There is a lot of history in those 400 years. Mankind went right on. And so this gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament is called the intertestamental period. And it lasted from the prophet Malachi until the coming of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus and his preaching. It is a rich period of history, but it is a period of history in which God didn't spoke. Now that doesn't mean he was inactive. inactive. Uh, during that time of history, there were a number of religious and political and cultural and civil changes during those years. Fascinating to read about it. But God's silence must have been deafening to those who were accustomed to hearing him speak. He had spoken before on numerous occasions and through various people. And so why not then? Why did he just hush? Why is there that period of the silence of God? I think partly it was just because God allowed people to exhaust all their resources. To just kind of come to the end of themselves so that they began to see that they and themselves were not enough without him. And so even though he was silent, he was not inactive. And even though there was no prophet in the land, God was busy. And he was watching over his word to perform it. He was arranging nations and kingdoms and world powers so that everything would be in place when the New Testament would come, when he would speak, and so then, after those years, after all of those years of of, New Te- of Old Testament pictures and teaching and examples and blueprint, and then after 400 years of saying nothing and yet arranging history to have everything ready, God finally spoke his greatest and most powerful word to mankind. God had promised Abraham that through his descendants, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. And God had promised Isaiah that a child would be born, a son would be given, and the government would rest upon his shoulders. His name would be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and of There would be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. There would be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. He would occupy the throne of David. And then a newborn baby's cry went up in Bethlehem. There he was. The fulfillment of all of the Old Testament blueprint jesus christ the messiah the promised one had been born galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 summarizes it this way but when the fullness of time came that's important the fullness of time came after all the old testament after all those 400 years the fullness of time came god sent forth his son born of a woman born under the law so that he might redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, so that we might become children of God. What does the New Testament say? In our last session, we looked at the Old Testament. We know that there are 400 years of silence, and then we know that out of all of that darkness, God spoke. And he spoke in his son, Jesus. So what does the New Testament say? What is it all about? In the New Testament, God's word became human. God's word became flesh. God himself became a human so that he might show us what he himself is really like, to give us the opportunity for people to have a real relationship with God To save us from our sin that would cause us to be separated from God forever. To defeat Satan and to show us how to live. So after all of those years of telling, God just said, I'm going to go to earth as a human and show them how you do this. Every one of the blueprints in the Old Testament becomes reality in Jesus Christ. He is what it's all about. He is God's full and complete revelation. We don't add to it. We don't take from it. God doesn't take that lightly. He is complete. He is sufficient. And the New Testament begins with what are called the Gospels. There are four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are called synoptic Gospels. That's because they give a synopsis of Jesus' earthly life. They give us this historical view of the life of Christ from his birth through his uh, death on the cross and his resurrection. And then John, the fourth gospel, gives us the supernatural view of Christ so that we see him as son of God. So remember that the words that they wrote, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote were God breathed and they were inspired, but God could use their personalities and their perspectives and their experiences and God could put it all together so that in the four gospels, we've got this perfect portrait of Jesus. So we learn a lot about Jesus in his life. And so it is a picture, the gospels are a picture of God speaking through his son. Now, Matthew showed us that Jesus was the long-awaited king, the son of David, the Messiah. And when that baby's cry went out from Bethlehem, the Magi arrived saying, where is he that is born king of the Jews? They knew. And the one who would rule Israel, the seed of Abraham, they were looking for him. And they kind of knew when to look, because of the prophecy of Daniel. So one would enter the kingdom of God through repentance and righteousness. Mark tells us of Jesus the servant who gave his life as a ransom for many. He was servant of all by dying for all mankind. Mark focuses on the works of Jesus. He came on a rescue mission. God left heaven to come to earth to show us more and tell us again how to be reconciled to God. And so Jesus came to earth, we're told, to seek and to save the lost. Who's lost? Everybody, except for those who have already received Christ, those who already believe by faith. Abraham believed by faith. So that was not a new thing. Luke enters the Gospels with this chronological look at Jesus as he calls Jesus the Son of Man. Luke is careful to show us the fulfillment of lots and lots of the things that were written in the Old Testament. So here's the blueprint. So here comes Luke saying, there it is, there it is, there it is, and you find all of those things in Messiah then John shows us that Jesus was the Son of God. He was God. He was God in human form, in human flesh. And John said that he wrote those things that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you have life in his name. John said, that's why I'm writing all this down. So that you will believe. Jesus died and he was buried and he rose from the dead on the third day. Then after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we have the book of Acts. Uh, Some people call it the Acts of the Apostles. I personally think um, that a better title is the Acts of the Holy Spirit because he's the one who's doing all of the work the Acts of the Holy Spirit. So in the book of Acts, following the four gospels, for over 40 days after Jesus had risen from the dead, the disciples of Jesus saw him, heard him, touched him, saw him, knew him as the risen Lord. He spoke with them concerning the kingdom. He ate with them. He engaged them. He He engaged lots of people during those 40 days that he was on earth. And then before their very eyes, he ascended into heaven. And they stood and watched. But he had given the promise that when he went away, he would send another helper, the Holy Spirit. And he commissioned them then to preach the gospel to the whole world. To reach the whole world with the message of Jesus, with the message of Christ that he had come to seek and to save, to give out the good news of salvation that now man can be restored to God, don't have to make those daily sacrifices all the time because Jesus was a sacrifice that was sufficient. He satisfied God once and for all. He was so complete. God said, you'll never have to have another sacrifice. And then in the book of Acts, on a certain day, the Holy Spirit came and the church was born. Now, in the form of the Holy Spirit, now God would not just live with the believer, he would live in a believer. We are the temple of God if we are believers. The Holy Spirit dwells in us. And so now God can dwell in a believer empowering us, enabling us. The disciples went about establishing congregations. Once they were filled with the Holy Spirit, they went about establishing churches in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, telling people about the gospel who would gather to hear and then they would want to gather together to hear more and to learn more and to serve the God who had Put His Holy Spirit, who had put Himself in them. Acts records the Apostle Paul's missionary journeys, and so he traveled, establishing churches. And then, as he went, he would write letters back to them. Now, it's kind of hard. We have to stop and think about how different life was then than it is today. I didn't have a post office. They um, certainly didn't have. Internet, copy machines. If we were going to send out a lot of letters today, we would write it, copy it, generate it off of a computer, and then just send it to thousands. We get all kinds of mass mailings. Well, they they didn't have that. They had one copy. And so when Paul would write a letter, he would send one copy, and the people would gather to read it and learn because there was not a way to get to massive crowds. There were no microphones. So people taught one another. And so Paul's missionary journeys, he established churches. And then once he established a church and went on to another place, he would write them a letter back. He would get news from them or get questions from them. And so he would write them a letter back. And so in the New Testament, then what do we have? We have the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Then we have the book of Acts, which is the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birth of the church. And so that means then now that God would indwell men and women who come to him in faith. And those who have come to him in faith and who have received the Holy Spirit are called the church. The church is a body of people. It's not a building. The building has become representative of a body of people, but the church is people, the body of people. And so then the rest, you've got the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, then Acts, and the rest of the New Testament contains what we call the epistles. That's a fancy word for letters letters. These are letters that were written by and to various church leaders explaining the promises of God, explaining how to be saved, and explaining how to give the church its doctrine and beliefs, and to tell the church how to live in the light, in light of the fact that Jesus the Messiah had come, that he had died for their sins, that he had risen from the dead, that he had sent his Holy Spirit, and to tell them that he is coming again, he's coming back. Then there's the book of Romans and it explains how to be saved. It tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It tells us then how to be saved by faith. The gospel or the truth about Jesus Christ is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the main thing, it is the issue. And the righteous, the book of Romans tells us, will live by faith. How do we live by faith? By believing God, by believing what he says, by believing that he will do what he says he will do, by believing what he's told us in his word. That's living by faith. So then we have the letters to the Corinthians. And the church at Corinth, there were divisions and there was chaos and there were disagreements and there were quarrels. and so. Paul wrote two letters to the Corinthians, and he says, look, don't you know that the Holy Spirit lives in you? The Holy Spirit lives in you. You are the temple. You are the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. You then have the mind of Christ, and you need to see what he says and agree on it. He tells them that without love, they are nothing Nothing means nothing without love. They are nothing. And then he goes on to tell what true godly love looks like in 1 Corinthians 13. He gives an account of the post-resurrection appearances of the risen Lord Jesus, and he tells about the future resurrection of believers. You and I will be raised from the dead our bodily resurrection, according to Corinthians. And all of that because of the fact that Christ has risen. So since Christ has risen, we will rise and live also. And Christ is the ultimate victory over death. And believers spend eternity in his presence. The letter to the Galatians tells us that we are justified by faith in Christ, not by works. I cannot do anything to earn my salvation. All God asks of me is that I believe him. I believe who he says he is, I believe who he says I am, and I bow to that and live accordingly. In Ephesians, we learn about the position of the child of God, that we are seated in the heavenlies next to Christ. That is positionally. And all of the things that God has done for us are revealed to us in the book of Ephesians. Long lists. And so we learn of the lifestyle of the believer and we have the power of God's word and God's spirit that he has given to us. And he says, look, I put my spirit in you so you can do this. I've given you everything you need to do this. You can do this. Then in Philippians, we learn that even in hard times, we can get our minds focused and rejoice in the Lord. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He's not gonna get started on you and not finish. It's our job to cooperate with him in the finishing. But he's gonna do what he has to do. Because he said he would. The letter to the Colossians explains that a believer is complete in Christ. We don't need anything else. If you're a believer, you don't need anything else. We are warned not to let other philosophies and other teachings deceive us. And the world is full of them to distract us, to get us away from the gospel that is Christ. And we're not to, we, we are to set our minds on things above, not on things of the earth. We don't need to get our minds so occupied with the world and the things around us that we lose sight of our heavenly goal and who we really are as citizens of the kingdom of God. Then the letters to the Thessalonians encourage us to follow Paul's example, to stand firm and to hold to the things we have been taught. There are words of hope and encouragement in those letters. There are hope and encouragement that believers will be presented as blameless and holy when Jesus comes again. So God does that work in us so that when Jesus comes again and we see him, we will be declared holy. First Timothy tells us how to conduct ourselves in the household of God. Second Timothy tells us to guard the treasure of the word of God. Guard it like your highest treasure. It is the best treasure that has been given to us except for the person of the Lord Jesus. He says you need to be about the business of retaining sound words. Retain them, perform them, teach them. Titus tells us to speak sound doctrine. What is sound doctrine? It is truth. It is truth according to the scriptures. In Paul's letter to Philemon, he takes on the role of advocate as he appeals to Philemon on behalf of a runaway slave. It's an interesting story and it is a wonderful example of forgiveness and restoration, how we need to treat one another. The letter to the Hebrews was written primarily to the Jewish believers. Jewish church, we can say. It is assurance that Jesus is our high priest. We do have a high priest. It is Jesus, and he is touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. How? Because he was man. He understands. He's been there. He he is touched with the feelings of our weaknesses, and he is one who ever lives to make intercession for us. What does that mean? That means that his job right now is that he sits in heaven and he prays for us constantly. James wrote primarily to Jewish believers also, and he told them that faith without works is dead. Just saying you believe is not enough. If you really believe, it's going to show up in your behavior. Belief behaves. And so James says, faith without works is dead. Just Don't just listen to the word to know it. Be a doer of the word. Do the verse. Put shoes on the instructions that we have in this book. The Apostle Peter wrote two letters. Peter knew the world's tribulation firsthand. Jesus had prepared Peter for it, and now Peter is preparing others for the persecution and the tribulation that has always been a part of history. Peter wrote that false teaching within the church is far more dangerous than persecution outside the church. So he's cautioning believers to stay true to the doctrine of christ to recognize false teachers and to put it away from us peter's greatest concern was the lord's sheep who's that that's us we are the shepherd's sheep the lord is my shepherd and so that makes us sheep and these are sheep that Jesus had commissioned Peter to go and feed and shepherd, go feed my sheep, go love my sheep, teach them, tell them. And so Peter's coaxing them to be on guard and to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter was a fisherman. He had been a fisherman, but he had been received and transformed by a shepherd by Jesus himself. And in 64 AD, according to tradition, Peter was crucified upside down for the Lord that he once denied knowing. He was crucified for his preaching. The apostle John that wrote the gospel of John also wrote three letters. He wrote, first, second, and third John. First John is the epistle of Christian assurance. And John said to his readers, I'm writing these things in order that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to think so. You don't have to hope so. John says, I'm writing this so you will know beyond a shadow of a doubt whether you have eternal life or not. He wrote second John outlining for us The basic tests of Christians, there are two basic tests. The first basic test is that of Christian behavior, and that is love. Do you see love in the life of a person who claims to be a believer? The second basic test is Christian belief. What does that person say about Jesus? Does that person agree with what the Bible says about Jesus, or has that person taken on some Teaching or some doctrine that says we need something other than Jesus or Jesus is not enough or other things so second John Basic tests of Christians Christian behavior, which is love and Christian belief, which is the person of Christ Third John is an interesting book. It is a stark contrast between two men who respond in opposite ways to the itinerant teachers who have been sent out by the apostles. They were trying to cover the world with the gospel so they would send out people that they had approved to move about the world and teach the gospel. And so uh, these two people in 3 John, one was walking in truth, living faithfully and loving others. He had the right Christian belief and the right Christian behavior, but the other one was arrogant and self centered and selfish. And so in 3 John, we see that contrast in those two people. The book of Jude is the shortest book in the Bible, and it gives us instruction and in how to contend for the faith. How do we contend for the faith? Read the book of Jude. The last book of the New Testament and the last book of the Bible is the Revelation. This also was written by the Apostle John. John was banished to the Isle of Patmos. Um, According to tradition, he was submerged in a cauldron of hot oil. He had been sent there, banished because of his testimony and his preaching of Jesus. He remained steadfast. He lived through the cauldron of hot oil. And he remained steadfast through all of that in Jesus' love and faithful to his calling, even in the midst of this incredible, indescribable persecution. And while John was on Patmos, God unveiled to him the future. What was going, what was and is going to come to pass It was God's final revelation and it is unparalleled by any other. In the book, we're told what is coming. But the first thing John saw was this incredible revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ seated in glory in his place in heaven, in all of his glory, and looked at him and knew that even in all of that, He is our soon-coming king. He's coming back. He will come to receive his church. He will come to rule the world for a thousand years. Then he will judge the world. The book of Hebrews begins this way. God, who in many ways and in many times spoke in times past to our ancestors by the prophets, has in these last days spoken unto us by his son. By his son. So what is the New Testament? The gospels give Jesus' story. His birth, his life, his words, his miracles, his death on the cross for our sin, his resurrection. Four gospels. The epistles then comment on it and explain it. And the revelation tells us that he's coming again and how to be ready for that and what to watch for. So there's the outline of the New Testament. The Gospels giving the story of Jesus, the epistles explaining it and giving instruction by it, and the revelation that tells us where it's all headed, where it's all going. Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. God finalized his revelation of himself. He had revealed himself and revealed himself and revealed himself and revealed himself in no case like this. Here I am. This is your first revelation. And he finalizes his revelation of himself in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. There's nothing else to add to it. That's all we need to know. We have all we need to know. Scripture tells us that the day will come When at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody goes to heaven. That means that the day is going to come when you are going, when every person, even enemies of Christ, are going to acknowledge that this word is true and that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, it will be too late for them for salvation, but those of us who go ahead and do it now, who go ahead and believe this word and understand and confess that Jesus Christ is God to the glory of the Father, we've already got our spot. We're already in the heavenlies by position. My place is there and I'm going there. God has given Jesus a name that is above every name. It is true throughout eternity, from the beginning of creation, from the beginning of time, all the way until time stops again. Jesus is in every book of the Bible. In Genesis, he is the creator. In Exodus, he is the deliverer. In Leviticus, he is the sin offering. In Numbers, he is the serpent on the pole. In Deuteronomy, he is the lawgiver. In Joshua, he is the captain of the host. In Judges, he is the judge. In Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, he is prophet, priest, and king. In Kings, he is the founder and destroyer of kingdoms. In Chronicles, he is the historian. In Ezra, he is the restorer of worship. In Nehemiah, he is the rebuilder of the wall. In Esther, he is the protector of the Jews. In Job, he is the friend. In Psalms, he is the song of songs. In Proverbs, he is the wisdom of the ages. In Ecclesiastes, he is the wonderful preacher. In the song of Solomon, he is the lover of the soul. In Isaiah, he is the holy one of Israel. In Jeremiah, he is the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, he is the faithful one. In Ezekiel, he is the glory. In Daniel, he is the revealer and the restorer. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband. In Joel, he is the refuge. In Amos, he is the divine plumb line. In Obadiah, he is the avenger. In Jonah, he is the missionary. In Micah, he is the appointer of Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is jealous. In Habakkuk, he is the focus of faith. In Zephaniah, he is the victorious warrior. In Haggai, he is the shaker of the heavens and earth. In Zechariah, he is the sovereign Lord. In Malachi, he is the refiner's fire. In Matthew, he is the king of the Jews. In Mark, he is the suffering servant. In Luke, he is the son of man. And in John, he is the son of God. In Acts, he is the power of the church. In Romans, he is the power of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, he is the first fruit. In 2 Corinthians, he is the God of all comfort. In Galatians, he is the grace of God. In Ephesians, he is the heavenly one. In Philippians, he is the joy. In Colossians, he is the head of the church. In 1 Thessalonians, he is the coming savior. In 2 Thessalonians, he is the slayer of lawlessness. In 1 Timothy, he is the hope. In 2 Timothy, he is the treasure. In Titus, he is the purifier. In Philemon, he is the advocate. In Hebrews, he is the best of all. In James, he is the doer of the word. In 1 Peter, he is the cornerstone. In 2 Peter, he is the giver of life and godliness. In 1 John, he is the light of life. In 2 John, he is the truth. In 3 John, he is the way. In Jude, he is the preserver. And in Revelation, he is the king of kings and lord of lords. He knows You. He knows your name. He has revealed Himself through His Word, through His Son, and today through the Holy Spirit to reveal Himself to you. He knows you. Do you know Him? Read this book, and He will speak to you. God bless you.